We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Good morning. We are going to take a pause from First Timothy this morning. And uh, I'd like to share from a psalm that uh, I've been thinking on this week. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. The psalms often are do that as we have different life situations going on. We often go to the psalms for comfort or strength or um, just encouragement in general. And uh, I'm not sure that Pastor ever did send an email out of this week or not. I sent out a message on WhatsApp and Signal, so I'm guessing most of you are aware of um, a trial that's going on in our life right now. More specifically, uh, my sister and her husband, but uh, my sister, just to keep it short, uh, my sister Jenna was pregnant and uh, 40 weeks pregnant last uh, week and uh, due uh, June 1st, actually our anniversary, Kaylee and I's, and uh, the baby had not come yet, which is normal for a first baby, but uh, the Lord the Lord had a plan to take that little one home early, and so last Sunday, uh, before she was born, the Lord uh, took her home, Vivian Joy Anderson, and so if you'd be praying for them today, service at 2.30 this afternoon to celebrate her life. She did live for nine months. She was very much alive. And actually, Vivian in Latin does mean alive or life. And so uh, we're thankful for that life uh, and that little one. And uh, Jenna did successfully keep her alive by God's strength for nine months. And so we're thankful for that. And I told Jenna on Monday, I said, well, she's more alive than she ever was right now. And of course, that doesn't uh, take care of all the grief of the here and now, but, um, but uh, we're praying for her. And so because of that, I sent a verse to her, to Jenna and Brian, from Psalm 34. And uh, we're not going to actually start there, although that's where we'll give uh, the, the main portion of our time to. But I'd like to actually start back in First Samuel, if you turn there to chapter 21. And... Um, there is a reason to think that uh, Psalm 34, the context of this, is in 1 Samuel 21. For, for one, the, uh, the uh, kind of subtitle there under the psalm tells us that, um, although those aren't inspired, those subtitles, but uh, it does refer back to this instance in 1 Samuel 21. And whether or not that is the case, that this is the context in which Psalm 34 is written, uh, I think there's a connection we can make. And um, so in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, the context here is David is, uh, is fleeing uh, from his adversaries and uh, from Abimelech or, uh, or Ahimelech, as it's said here in 1 Samuel. And... Um, 
Let me just uh, start uh, in verse. Uh, let me start back in verse one, although we won't read all of this. It says, and "Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you?'" So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Um, so David with his men is, is, um, uh, is at with the priest there. And of course, there's the bread that was only reserved for the priest to eat. No one else was to eat this, and so, but David's asking him, what do you have on hand? You know, they're desperate. It says in verse 3, Now therefore, what do you have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand. Meaning, you know, there's no just, you know, the morning baked bread for anyone to eat. There's the only thing here is the holy bread, he says. Uh, and he says, If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, so the priest is willing to offer them this bread, but he wants to know that these men are pure, it's, you know, not purified quite like the priests were in all their kind of rituals for that. But he wanted to make sure these were not men, you know, defiled and unholy in character and conduct. And so then David says in verse five, he answered the priest and said to him, "Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out." And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Uh, verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. And the Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then verse 10, uh, which I want to focus on here, it says, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So David flees from Saul. He goes to Achish. And it says, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And so David's fleeing from Saul, and he goes to this city thinking he's going to find safety there. You know, he's going to be kind of incognito there, but people recognize him, uh, which, you know, he's concerned about because he's concerned, okay, news is going to get back to Saul that I'm here, and he's going to pursue me. So... Verse 12 says, Now David took these words to heart, uh, meaning they really cut to his heart. You know, he was afraid, it says, very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So it says, He changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, 
scratched on the doors of the gate and left and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Um, you know, some might say, well, this is pretty, you know, pretty quick thinking for him to come up with this in order to, to pretend mad and, uh, you know, not be recognized or just be kind of disregarded. Well, you know, <laughs> he's gone mad. You know, what harm will he do to the king now? But really what it's doing is it's demonstrating a lack of trust in God. Um, you know, David should have remembered that God had promised the kingship to him, that God would protect him, uh, that he should not be worried. But David takes things into his own hand, his own hands and he, uh, he fakes madness in order to save his life. Verse 14 then, Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman, men, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so um, I just want to draw from this before we go to Psalm 34 that uh, in times of trouble and trial, it's easy to resort to our own devices and uh, take matters into our own hands. Um, you know, David had his way of doing it, and maybe we don't outwardly do that, you know, act crazy or do something rash like that, but inwardly we may try to seek to take control of the situation uh, for a number of reasons. Maybe we feel that God has left us in the moment, that uh, there is nothing to resort to but our own, our own you know, ways, and uh, I think in Psalm 34, David demonstrates and uh, reflects on this and realizes this, that he doesn't have to resort to himself. God has not left him. God has not forsaken him. God's promises are still true. They are there. They are present. And God is near to him. He is not far away. And so I'd like to focus on that this morning from Psalm 34. We'll walk through the whole Psalm, but really focus in on verse 18 for a part of our time. And, um, of course, a lot has been on my mind when it comes to the grief that my sister's dealing with and the situation there. And it's, it's very easy, and I'm not trying to downplay this, but it's very easy to say, well, God is sovereign. And he is that. And we must be reminded of that. In fact, um, very fittingly, this week, uh, down at the business meetings for Gospel Mission of South America, a number of men lo- led devotions in the morning, and uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday morning, we heard a, a devotion on the sovereignty of God. And my heart was blessed by that, to be reminded of God's sovereignty over all things, even things which we will never understand, and that's, that's where we just kind of have to lay it in God's hands. And so I'm, I'm grateful for God's sovereignty. It, it certainly gives us peace in troubled times to know that God is ruling and on his throne doing that. But, but uh, it's, sometimes it's not as simple as telling someone who's grieving or in, much, in a great trial to say, well, God's sovereign. You know, it certainly needs to be said, but there's more that can be said besides that. God is not just sovereign. He's also good. He's also compassionate. He's also gentle and loving. And he's also very near to us in those 
trials. And so this morning I want to focus on that, that not only is God sovereign, which is important, but he is also near to those who are broken in heart. He is near to those who are broken in heart. And in Psalm 34, good morning, Bill. Good to see you. Psalm 34, let me read that to you, and then we'll work through this psalm in our time this morning. It says there, uh, in that subtitle there, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. And in verse 1, David writes this, I will bless the Lord at all times. All times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked, at, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such, a, and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. I'm going to offer a word of prayer before we look at this psalm this morning. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, Lord, may these truths that David reflected upon and by your spirits superintending him, Lord, wrote these words. 
as Scripture to teach us, to encourage us, to remind us of who you are, your character, your goodness. Lord, that your eyes are upon the righteous. You hear their cry. Lord, and you draw near to them. We thank you for that promise. In Christ's name, amen. Thinking in the context then of 1 Samuel 21 and the uh, David knowing that his life was was being sought after any day, who knows, David thought, you know, his life may end. Saul was pursuing him. And so David had much reason to be troubled. <laughs> and in those desperate times, we often lack trust in God and his word. And I think here in Psalm 34, what David is doing is, by God's help, correcting his thinking. Trials and troubles often kind of cloud our, our judgment and thinking so that we know something's true. It's not as if we don't trust God's word anymore. We know it's true, but it's hard to think clearly about it in those times of grief. It's hard to get past the grief, get past the situation, and remember that God is, God is still working that uh, he is he is close by, and so I think Psalm 34 is really David working through these things in his heart and in his soul, working through it to recalibrate his thinking in his heart, so as not to uh, not to depend on his own devices, but to really depend on God's word. And it's often in those times of trouble and grief that those things become very tangible: the promises of God. Of course, we believe them in the good times, but it's in those difficult times that we really understand God's word in a tangible way as it applies to our life. And notice in all of this, David begins in verses 1 to 3 by magnifying the Lord. It's not easy to do in grief, but we have to remember that God is to be magnified as David says in verse 1, when? At all times. At all times. David says, I will bless the Lord. His praise, he says in verse 1, shall continually be in my mouth. God desires that even in the most difficult times that our mouth, our lips, our heart, our lips only speak what comes from our hearts. Our lips praise the Lord and magnify him. And not only does this cause us to give praise to the Lord and refocus our attention on him, but it also has an effect on others. Look at verse 2. He says, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it. And be glad. The humble here, I think, refers to other people who fear the Lord, other believers. Only those kind of people are truly humble in spirit. And, um, you know, often we may not know what to say to someone who's grieving and in trouble in a trial. 
But when we see them praising the Lord, it does something to us. It causes us to be glad and to come around them and to join them in their praise of the Lord. It doesn't mean that we have to be, you know, overly joyful and, and bubbly and, you know, kind of neglect the grief. But we hold on to the fact that we can praise the Lord with them, celebrate what God is doing despite trials. And David even says this in verse 3. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Even in my trial and in my struggle, even when my life is, is just a vapor and may be gone tomorrow, David says, magnify the Lord with me while we still have time together. Let us exalt his name together. And so David begins the psalm with a, a prelude of thanksgiving and exaltation to the Lord even in his trouble and trial. And then, beginning in verse 4, David relays the fact that he sought the Lord, and God was not away doing something else. God had not left him alone. Rather, David says, he sought the Lord, and he heard me. God hears our prayers. He hears the prayer of the righteous one who's crying out in grief and affliction and trouble. God is pleased when the righteous seek him. In trials and troubles, our first response, we know this, we've often said this, is go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Are you troubled by something, afflicted by something, grieved by the grief of others? Seek the Lord. But notice the promise in verse 4 is not necessarily that God will just remove that trouble, that trial. Sometimes you can't undo something. It's, it's done according to God's ordained will. You can't undo it, but he can deliver you from the fears that come with that trial. I'm thankful for that promise that God hears and he does something. He acts. He acts on our behalf. He delivers us from all our fears. Notice kind of the implicit imperatives here, the commands, the, the example we could say to follow. We are to magnify the Lord at all times. We are to seek the Lord. And we are to, in verse 5, look to the Lord. It says in verse 5, they, they looked to him, that is all the righteous ones, the humble ones, including himself, David. They looked to him and were radiant, how do you have that kind of response in a trouble and trial? Because you're looking to the sovereign God. You're not looking at the things around you, the horizontal things, as it were, things that are fleeting, 
that offer no lasting peace or comfort, but you're looking to the Lord who is the living God. Verse 6, I think David's speaking of himself, but maybe put your name in there just for the moment. This poor man cried out. When he says poor, I don't think he's thinking of riches. In fact, we know David goes on to be a very wealthy man, perhaps not quite so rich at the time. But I don't think he's talking about wealth here. I think he's talking about his inner being. He is poor, meaning he's, he's been brought very low in life, in circumstances. He feels like there's nothing else left in him to get himself out of this situation or to keep on moving on. And so he says, this, this poor man cried out. I'm sure each one of us has had that moment There's nothing left in you. You have no answer to the situation around you that you're in. And you just pray, God, help me. You may not even have the words to say. don't even know what to pray. You just say, Lord, help. Help me. I'm poor. I need you. And again... God doesn't just simply hear the prayer. He does that, but he does something about it. It says in verse 6, He saved him out of all his troubles. May not be immediate. May not be as soon as we like. May not even necessarily be in this life. But he does save us from all our troubles. Not just the one, not just two, but all of them. We have this promise in verse 7. He says, the angel of the Lord, I take that to refer to Christ, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. The idea of encamping around is to surround one, to be there over them, encamping over them, so that nothing can get at them without first going through the Lord. He promises this, we see it in verse 7, to those who fear him. What a wonderful promise that is, specific to God's people. The unbeliever doesn't have that promise. That is a blessing for you as a believer. If you're one of God's people, if you're born again, one of Christ, one of God's children, you have this very specific and unique promise that he encamps around those who fear him. To fear him doesn't mean to be afraid, but to revere him, to honor him as Lord. And God delights in honoring those who honor him by coming around them, by protecting them, being their refuge and strength. 
God is not just sovereign. Yes, he is that. He encamps around you. He is in control. What seems to be chaos, maybe in our minds, is God's perfectly orchestrated plan. But God is not just sovereign. We see in verse 8, God is good. Psalmist encourages us to remember this. He says, Oh, taste and see. Of course, he's not talking about using our taste buds, but all of our being, I think, is what he's talking about here. Taste, one form of sensory, and, and see with our eyes, all of our being. You know, we might even say, hear. Taste and see and hear, touch all of our being, all of, all of us. See that the Lord is good. God is good. Along with everything else that he is. God's goodness is displayed all around us in life. Most predominantly in the fact that he saved us. Why me? Why the poor man? Why me? Because God is good, and he loves, and he is gracious. But he is not only good in our salvation, he is that, but he continues to be good each and every day. It's not as if um, I was listening to a documentary on um, those who were trying to replace the true gospel with what is titled the American gospel. Maybe you've heard of this documentary. And um, there's this, you know, they were correcting kind of this false view about God's character and his, his attributes. God is not, when he's loving, only loving, or when he is just, only just. He is fully and equally both at the same time. He is fully just, he is fully loving, he is fully good. And I think we know that, you know, in a kind of theological way. But we have to remember that in the day-to-day life. God is fully loving, fully sovereign, fully good. He's not one or the other, you know, which, what do I want to be today? He's all of it at once. And it's not 50 this, 50 that. It's 100% good, 100% sovereign. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints. That's a command. Fear him, revere him. Not just up here, but in your heart. There is no want to those who fear him. Does that remind you of another psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Those who fear the Lord lack nothing of his good pleasure. Nothing we need, that is. The young lions, verse 10, lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord 
shall not lack any good thing. So verse 9 and verse 10 are really the same idea, just being kind of rephrased to make it more tangible in our minds. He uses the example of a young lion who may suffer, you know, want of food. Perhaps mama lion can't find food for her babies. That happens. We see that on a human level, even suffering hunger. That's going to happen. It's inevitable in the fallen world we live in, but, but there's a promise for those who fear God that those who seek the Lord will never lack any good thing. Not even for a minute or a second or a day. Verse 11, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Many of you, if not most of you out there, have been a parent or are a parent. We have the, uh, the privilege and the responsibility, you more than I, being older, most of you, of learning life lessons. And I think what David is saying here is, listen, you youngins, <laughs> don't make some of the same mistakes I did. Let me teach you what I've had to learn in the difficult times of life. Remember to fear the Lord. Do it now while you're young, and that will keep you through your life. It will give you all that you need. All the good things that you need will come if you just fear the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? Kind of a rhetorical question. Well, everyone, right? Don't we all desire to live uh, a long life, a good life? And loves many days that he may see good? Of course. That's an honorable desire. I don't think that's a bad desire to have that. Especially if we have a desire to use that life in a way that pleases the Lord. Well, If you desire that, then fear the Lord. And kind of in verse 13 and 14 is kind of the the opposite of what it means to fear the Lord. Or in some sense, it says in verse 13, keep your tongue from evil, meaning don't speak evil. If you're speaking evil, you're not fearing the Lord. In your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These are the kind of qualities of of a person who fears God. I can't help but think that David has in mind his deceit that he had played there in Achish. I don't know what he said. He didn't doesn't give us in First Samuel twenty one, you know, how he portrayed himself specifically, just that he, you know, pretended to be mad and so perhaps, you know, he's babbling on, you know, in an in kind of comprehensible way and David's reflecting on that and saying, I, I was deceit, deceitful in what I did there. I didn't trust the Lord. I didn't fear him in that moment, at least, as I ought to have. 
I was troubled in my heart. I was afraid. Which, which one of us can't say that? I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. David says, don't do this. Don't resort to that. Resort to fearing the Lord. He'll take care of you. He'll give you every good thing. In fact, in verse 15, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. They're not somewhere else looking off and, Oops, forgot about, forgot about you. No. His eyes are ever-present on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. He sees them. And he hears them. What a wonderful promise to the believer. As we said earlier, that cannot be said the same to the unbeliever, unfortunately, unless they enter into the fear of the Lord and believe in him. Because we see it in verse 16. He says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His eyes are not upon them, at least not in the same way. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. I'm so glad I'm not in that state anymore. I'm so glad for God's salvation. I don't want the face of the Lord to be against me. I need Him. I need Him every day. Verse 17 the righteous cry out. And the Lord hears. There's a reoccurring theme here, isn't there? The poor man cries out. The Lord hears. He seeks him. The Lord hears. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. There's this personal relationship. A very near and close relationship between the righteous and the Lord. So intimate. The righteous cries out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Notice what I see is maybe a little bit of parallelism. The Lord delivers from all the troubles, and at all times, David praises. There's this kind of uh, uniqueness or, or kind of interwovenness here of God is always going to deliver, and so I'm always going to praise. And then verse 18, really the verse that I was reflecting on this week and I shared with my sister and brother-in-law. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Think about the nearness of the Lord. It's a little bit hard for our minds to wrap around. We might think of, you know, kind of in a, in a locative sense, you know, he's close by, he's by my side. And I think as humans in a kind of finite way, we can think about it that way. Just like a person comes to your side and maybe wraps their arm around you, they're, they're near to you. But, of course, we can't really measure God's nearness in space because God is everywhere. And specifically in the believer, God has indwelt the believer through his spirit. 
So I, when we think about the nearness of the Lord, it's, it's helped me to think about it this way. God, it's not just just his presence, again, in a location, because God is everywhere. And so in some sense, we could say God's spirit is even near to the unbeliever and that he's everywhere. So what, what is unique about the, the righteous, the believer? It's that God's nearness is that he has manifested himself more predominantly, more, more uniquely, more fully to the believer. That's really what it means to be indwelt with the Spirit of God because, you know, we say he resides in us, but again, God, God is everywhere. And so when we say he's, he's indwelt him or he's near to him, it means he's manifested himself more fully in that person in a unique way different from the unbeliever. It's not bad to say, you know, God's Spirit is in us. I'm not saying that. Don't take me to say that. But, but when we think about it more specifically and fine-tune our thinking, and it's that he's manifested himself more fully. And God does this in salvation, just like talks about in Matthew, you know, blessed is the poor in spirit. That is, spiritually speaking, those who are poor in spirit. But here I don't think it's just talking about spiritually. It's talking about those who are in trouble, in affliction. He says he's near to those who have a broken heart. And so there's this unique promise and special promise that specifically when you're broken in heart, God is manifesting himself even more fully than any other circumstance. Despite what we may feel that actually God has removed himself from the situation, he's actually brought himself even closer than when you weren't in that state. And David, trying to recalibrate his thinking and his heart, which is so clouded, realizes that. God hasn't removed himself. He's, he's brought himself even closer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. David's thinking now in a kind of eschatological way, future redemption. He, of course, has redeemed us now, but we will be fully redeemed one day. And so even when there's things in this life that cannot be undone, David says he redeems my soul the soul of his servants, that is, those who love him and fear him. And rest assured, David says, none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. That gives my soul much peace in this time. That whatever affliction may come, and they will come, often and many, for some... We will not be condemned because God is near and he has redeemed and we can trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
thank you for the promises of this this psalm, Lord. David, writing from his heart, led along by your spirit, so that a few thousand years later, we can stand here today and say, we, we understand that. We understand what David was going through. His thinking may have been off. He may have been in sin, but which one of us have not felt what David felt? And Lord, may we remember that when in affliction and trial and grief, God, you are sovereign, but you are good. God, you have not removed yourself, but you have actually brought yourself even closer to the broken in heart. What a wonderful promise that is, Lord. And we rest on that, if nothing else. In Christ's name, amen.